Hey everybody, this one is the seminar Mario and Dan did over at the Mobile Hunters Expo. We kind of turned it into a little bit of a before the echo uh, show for you guys where I kind of asked them questions about hunting pressured mature bucks and they answered. And then we took some questions from the audience. It was a really good turnout. Holy cow, we packed a house on this one. It was cool. You guys are really going to enjoy it. Before we get into it, let's talk about some of the things my partners have going on. You're tired of spending money on trail cameras you use as tools only to find out they're built like freaking toys? Or you've struggled with unreliable, not so dependable cameras or experienced customer service that flat out disappointed you? I've been there. Those problems literally birthed Exodus eight years ago when they shipped their first camera. Exodus had a clear desire to not only build elite products that enabled you to set it and forget it all season long, but also to back them like no other company was willing to with an unmatched level of customer service and support. See for yourself why Exodus has over 15,000 satisfied customers. They've quickly become known for their five-year no BS warranty, quality cameras, and best-in-class customer service. You heard that right. Exodus believes in their products so much, every single camera is backed by a five-year warranty that includes theft and accidental damage coverage. Each camera is checked for quality control standards before it leaves the warehouse. If they wouldn't use it, you don't get it. Exodus is so confident you'll love your new Exodus camera. They're offering you, the listener of this show, 15% off your next order today. Just use code BTE. If you don't love it, get your money refunded in the first 30 days and just send her back. Exodus really has two excellent cell cam options for uh, all budgets, and they start at just $179, plus you're 15% off there if you use the code BTE. They have competitive data plans that allows you to purchase a plan and use the data as you see fit. They want you to be in control. There's no annual commitment and no limit on how many cameras you can run on one plan. You can share cameras with friends, no charge, which makes the Exodus lineup a great option for hunting clubs and leases. There are no additional fees for HD photo requests. That's pretty nice. No additional fees for video uploads. And all cameras share data on a single data plan for easy management. See for yourself why so many have made the switch to Exodus and experienced the Exodus difference. Use code BTE to get 15% off your next order today. Now let's talk about Osseo gear. It's a great option for whitetail hunters. They develop a premium line of bow hunting gear that will rival any other clothing on the market in quality. Plus, you got a lifetime warranty on anything you buy from Osseo, which is pretty nice. They have a super unique camo pattern and great technology in their garments to keep you comfortable in the stand. So visit asiogear.com to get you some premium hunting clothing. Also, I want to talk about Hunting Beast gear makers of the beast stand and beast sticks in my opinion the best option for a mobile hunter that's looking to pound the public land or just hop around on your private land i don't hardly worry about permanent stands anymore on the uh, few pieces of private i do have i just use that beast stand and sticks and i got so good with putting it up uh, taking it up and down i really feel comfortable using it in any scenario whatsoever you haven't had the experience of getting your hands on a beast stand and trying it out for yourself go to beastgear.com get your pre-order in for the stand order you some sticks and become more deadly this year season speaking of deadly gotta talk to you about stealth outdoors makers of stealth strips which is a great addition to any beast stand that you're going to buy or beast sticks it's a great addition for all kinds of stuff. I just put some on my bow the other day. Stealth strips really are a, a product that any hunter, whether you're a weekend warrior or a guy that hunts almost every day, really needs to take advantage of. Stuff absolutely deadens your, your gear uh, to make it essentially uh, noise-free. If you haven't checked out stealth strips yet, stop buying all the other crappy alternatives like the hockey tape and any other stuff you're trying to use to silence your gear, get the good stuff. Get Stealth Strips. Visit StealthOutdoors.com. Pick you up some Stealth Strips. All my partners are linked in the description below. Go check them out. 
Um, so how we're going to do this, it's kind of like a show. I just got a, a list of topics to talk about um, with Dan and Mario, and we'll, we'll get into it. We're going to kind of focus on, you know, heavily pressured mature bucks and, you know, how these two uh, get on it. But I felt like before we started, we kind of needed to find what pressure is because it's different throughout the, the country. And I was just curious uh, to ask Dan and Mario, like, what is your guys' take on uh, on pressure and what actually would define a property to be high pressure for you? High pressure. I mean, I, I don't really look at stuff as pressure because I look at, uh, you know, I'll go to parking lots that are completely full of cars. And it's the section right where I'm hunting is where the pressure matters. Um, all those people don't bother me. It matters if there's a buck there, a big buck. Now, where pressure matters is if they kill all the young bucks before they get to size. Um, but otherwise, uh, pressure isn't a huge influence. As a matter of fact, it can kind of help you because it, you know, you know where not to hunt kind of thing. Yeah, Mario, do you got anything to add to that? Yeah, I, I think I kind of look at pressure in different ways. Obviously, I think human pressure is a factor that we've all experienced. You know, how many people are coming into an area that you're hunting, but more specifically, how it changes the behavior of the deer of where you're going to hunt so and that can impact how i actually access a property so the the, the pressure has a lot to do with how i'm going to go about hunting a property if i know that pressure is coming from a specific direction in an area but maybe my access maybe it's coming from the north but i only have access from the east and the predominant wind is from the southwest so all those things are going to factor in a into my decision of whether or not I'm even going to be able to hunt that area or that buck because I only have a certain access and the pressure is coming from a certain access. But I agree with Dan that it does then whittle down to that specific area where you believe those deer are bedding and how that pressure impacts their movement. So there, there could be 20 people in the parking lot, fine, but when how are they accessing and where are they going? With their pressure is is kind of what i key in on all right so access and pressure i think i mean the majority of my hanging hunts i'm i'm walking in in a lot of cases so access for me when i'm looking on a map really boils down to is, is there a right away or is there a way i can go with my vehicle to get off on a side road where i can get access from another direction opposite from the predominant area that that i may be coming from um so again if that's from the south is there a way i can come in from the east or the west now really in the areas in southeastern wisconsin where i hunt a lot there's a lot of water there's a lot of riverways and some of these little niche properties the way that you can get in on public and get to some of the secluded areas is through water so i do have a kayak that's probably one of my other alternative ways that I use is to take and pack stuff on a kayak and go in and go up or just simply walk to an area where I need to cross a river. And that may, you know, require bringing waders if you don't want to get wet in the early season, you know, you don't need waders and crossing water access. So I would say the, the two things I do the most is finding alternate right of ways. So little slivers of property that allow you in onto a public so that you can't necessarily hunt, but you get right away access. There's a lenience there. And then I use water, you know, either by a kayak or a boat. So those would be my two alternates that I use the most. Yeah. So there's uh, one thing I want to add to that. This is a little different twist than his. Um, a lot of guys think of this, you know, you know, with the pressure and the access of avoiding people. A lot of times I use those people as access. I want to access the same way because if you off that route, deer get upset. I mean, they, they expect you in a certain area. So I'll take those human access trails into a point and then jut off. Matter of fact, I find a lot of my biggest bucks bedding watching access points. I shoot them right next to parking lots where everybody parks. And I know Mario does the same. Yeah. You know, One property that we hunted quite a bit together, a very large property, there's like an access trail that goes through it that everybody takes. It, you know, like bird watchers and everything else. 
And as long as we stay on that axis, I mean, you could hunt running that trail, you could hunt over and over and over again, those deer would be used to you. But you step 20 yards off that trail and that deer hits your scent, they freak. Yeah, that, that brings up a real good point in a lot of the areas with land development. So I'm sure many of you are experiencing, unless you're in a real rural area, but a lot of the urban sprawl, there's a lot of development going on. So they're building subdivisions, they're building parks. And with these park systems, there's a lot of trails that extend a significant part of the public area. And it seems odd, but if you monitor a lot of these areas that have trail systems in them, there is mature animals that will pull close to cover that sits close to those human traffic trails. And as Dan mentioned, you, you know, the deer are really wily and spooky, but you can monitor those areas. And I've, I've hunted close to horse trails and human walking trails and had success where deer will bed up, where they're in within earshot. So I always think of it as like sight, sound, smell, safety. They're using those four things when they're picking a spot. And that could be very close to where they're seeing human traffic on a daily basis. And they'll be comfortable with you staying on that trail where they're watching and monitoring everyone move and then you know the moment that someone walks off or they invade that little niche or that space it'll spook them that's pressure to them but if you can figure out how to hunt that and how to monitor how they're going in and out of it through your access and and maybe you're using cameras or just eyes on being actually actually see that deer um those are those little overlooked spots. Again, I live in southeastern Wisconsin, so it's relatively highly populated with hunters. And if you go, you know, in a 100, 150 mile band, you're still gonna be running into a lot of people because you're not that rural. So those little niche spots are some of the things that I use to try to get in and think differently about how to hunt those areas. Mario, you mentioned monitoring pressure. Is, is either one of you guys like, is there, a specific way you kind of keep track of people on public land around where you guys hunt at, or is there any monitoring methods you use? <laughs> I mean, I, I think try to break out of your shell and be a little bit vocal, make small talk with people. Some people, you know, they don't necessarily want to talk to you when you're in the parking lot, but just, you know, you ask questions like, Hey, you know, how did the hunt go tonight? Or, Oh, did you see anything? Or I, you know, talking with friends and family. Um, obviously, with being involved with the beast, there's a lot of people that ask, "Oh, how are things going?" And then they say, "Oh, so and so uncle saw this buck," or people send me pictures of of bucks in the area. Um, so then I just go investigate those spots, you know, and, and see what's going on with it. Not that I want to go into that area and bump someone else out of there, but I always keep my eyes and ears open if people are telling me information where they're just sharing stories, because that helps. Uh, and then there's the obvious, just open sense of driving around and looking where other people are focusing their time and energy on and, and looking for sign, human sign when you're in the woods, right? Uh, to see where they've been or where they're going. Got anything to add to that, Dan? No. <laughs> All right. Um, I want to ask one more question before we get into more tactical stuff. Uh, like for you guys, does trucks and parking lots scare you away at all to a, a property? Something I had to learn when I started hunting Wisconsin was, you know, I was getting real timid. I'd leave a parking lot because there was one truck sitting there. And then I'd, I'd go to the next one, there'd be another truck sitting there. And some of my buddies are finally like, you just got to go. Like there are going to be people everywhere. So like, is there a point where you guys are like, okay, um, I, I guess what's your guys' limits when it comes to pressure? So um, really where me and Mario are from is really heavy pressure. I mean, we're right near two major cities, Milwaukee, Madison, we're right between them, near Conomowoc. I mean, there's all kinds of Waukesha. It's a very populated area and hunting is very popular there. So, I mean, there is a lot of pressure on the, on the public land there. And a lot of my best success has been right next to giant parking lots full of cars. I mean, um, Rome legend buck, I, the whole parking lot was full. There's like 20 cars there. Everybody in the town was hunting that buck. And I went out and shot it. I walked right underneath five guys hunting that buck on my way to kill that buck. You just have to learn, you, you know, you're hunting a buck that is in a spot 
The whole rest of the woods doesn't matter. Those people are insignificant because uh, a mature buck will find an area and he can live right next to people. He can live in a backyard. He can live right next to a parking lot. He ain't like a black bear that just hates people and stays way away. Deer live right under your noses. So they will find a spot like that and they'll live in a bedding area that's kind of overlooked where people just don't go. And that's what you got to find. And they will get to a point where they'll be living in like what I'll call a safe zone. Think about a circle around that bed where they think anything comes in there, they'll know about it. And they can move in there in daylight. And they will. And they'll get up during the day and move around. And what I want to do is I want to get right to the edge of that safe zone, like 75, 100 yards from the bed, where they just can't see me, smell me, or hear me, right on that edge. And when they get up and move out, shoot them when they get to about 75 yards from the bed. And what people don't realize is when I'm shooting these buck, it's, it's right on closing time. It's not like an hour before closing. They're not getting any further. They're not getting 200 yards. They're not getting 300 yards. I mean, some of the younger bucks get up, come by us at, you know, an hour before dark or whatever. But when I shoot a five or six year old deer, it's usually in that last half hour of daylight. And if you're 200 yards from that bed, you ain't killing them, period. Not even in rut. Yeah, I, I would mirror what Dan said that I think it's more of a factor of the animal, like the actual deer behavior. You know, Dan, as a kid, um, you know, we spent many, many hours, if you think, out in the woods observing deer, observing their behavior and seeing how they behave. If, if I, I sort of go back to the urban development thing, because if any of you guys have grown up in a rural area and then seen how deer herds behave, when their habit, you know, they're living in a specific area that's rather rural, and then you get a subdivision that comes up and is developed. Like a lot of those deer will stay in that area, but they change their behavior. They'll they'll tolerate people in those areas. So this public hunting land that you're hunting or these other areas that are hunting that are holding bedding, it's sort of the same concept. The deer are gonna adjust to where the people are coming into the woods most. And most people are going to travel into the woods, whether they're, you know, afraid of getting too far away from the parking lot or whether they're only comfortable or they, they feel a spot is comfortable for them and they're used to that set. Well, you can, you can learn and pattern where those areas are. But what you should focus on is recognize, okay, that's pressure, but I want to actually find out where those deer are living. I want to find out where those, those bucks are bedding. And then that's going to be my focus. And then, of course, combined like my wind, my access, how those people are moving. Because that deer is going somewhere. If you have a mature animal that's in the area, it's learning what those hunters and other people are doing. And it's using that to its advantage to avoid them. And it's little slivers of windows. I know we've said this a hundred times, thousand times, but it, it really is small windows of movement in daylight. And that's why I really, you know, I like the early season. I like the pre-rut because it's those patterns still exist before it gets all wild in the rut. And, you know, you could have a chance at a big one running around, but the patterns go away. So, you know, I think shrink, like Dan said, shrink the whole area down and then try to decide, you know, is there something mature living here? Is there something here I even want to go after? So Mario, you talked about um, properties holding bedding is what you said. What makes a property good for holding bedding? Like what are some of the features you guys are looking for? Mario or Dan, either one. I'm sure both of you have comments on this. Yeah, I, I like, um, I mean, high stem count. I'm sure you've probably heard this before, but areas that, you know, when you're going into them, there's, you know, it could be red brush. We got a lot of buckthorn that grows into the swamps now. I like cattails, but if you're on the tops of hills, areas that have very high stem count and it's brushy. So again, I, I look at the four, the four things I look at, like sound, sight, safety, and smell. So when I'm looking at an area that's gonna hold bedding, and if I find a spot that's got multiple beds in it, and I, I'll sit in there and I'll think to myself, okay, four S's, you know, sound, sight, smell, safety. If I'm a buck or if I'm a deer and I'm in here, 
what's going through my mind if I'm trying to think like a deer and how am I using those four factors to protect myself? You know, am I up against a river in an oxbow? Do I have elevation or do I, you know, it could be we've had success up against like railroad tracks and things like that where you get thickets of brush growing. Um, but usually that high stem count is super important because seasonally that can change. Like you'll walk now, I know Dan just did a scouting video with Eric and Rick and they're finding beds out there, right? But a lot of those are summer beds because that vegetation is gonna drop down. So finding those really thick high stem count areas, that's gonna retain foliage throughout the entire year. And those deer are gonna gravitate and concentrate toward those areas as, as more and more pressure comes on. So. I think to expand more on the just um, terrain aspects, I mean, I'm looking for, you know, in swampy terrain, like you guys have a lot out here, I'm looking for that edge. So the edge might be where, you know, tamaracks turn into cattails or hardwoods turn into tamaracks or, um, you know, even dogwood and cattails, island edges. It seems like um, probably 90% of the daylight movement I find is along that edge. Now, uh, if you get into hill country, it's more leeward edges and stuff and specifically looking for like, uh, thermal hubs, things like that, terrain features. Um, but then most of all, not just finding those features, because that's what everybody's looking for, but finding them in overlooked spots. Like in hill country, I mean, it's a, a common thing for me and Mario both to find these spots where you got a low access and the, there's a high ridge beside you that's right alongside the road. And nobody parks in the parking lot and walks along the road up the ridge. You know, like in the swamps here in Michigan, nobody parks in the parking lot and hunts 100 yards down the road 50 yards in. And because of that, these bucks find those niches that have the terrains they want, have that edge they want, or have that elevation that they want. You're still looking for that, but it's in a spot where nobody goes. So what I like to do is like I'll take a large property and uh, I'll look at it and just kind of wipe the whole map clean and find that five or 10% of the property that I think nobody goes. And then I'll look for those terrain features in that area on a map. And then I'll go to the property and I'll just scout those areas. And I won't even expand on that. If I go, if I go into an area that looks like that, first thing I wanna see is some very large high rubs. I don't find those, I'm moving on. I'm on the next property. And I can do that and I can know if there's bucks on a property like that by going by one of those key feature places in 10 minutes. If I don't find those rubs, I'm out of there onto the next property because not every property holds a big buck. And that's a problem people have too, is like they'll learn one property and that's where they always hunt. And they're gonna be hunting over the years, there's no buck to hunt too, hunting a deer that doesn't exist or hunting a smaller class of buck. So I'll hop around and find different bucks on different properties and find those little key niche overlooked spots with that terrain that Josh was asking about. Yeah, that's... That's a uh, that's all good stuff. Um, now that you went, like, let's say you guys, you, you did everything you said. You you found the pressure and where it's not, and you found these uh, buck beds that we always talk about. Um, and you're getting ready to go in and, and hunt that buck bed. What do you guys feel like from there? Where do people start making mistakes when they're they're walking in uh, to hunt a buck bed? Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I, Dan just mentioned route or access in. I think that goes down to the whole, whole puzzle. So I'll back it up a little bit where Dan was saying he looks at a map and he breaks it down to like 5% area that I want to attack right here. So after you do that, that's when you start thinking in your mind, okay, how am I going to access it? What's going to be my route in? Sometimes you have to cross off a property because literally that spot that you want to get to, that you want to hunt on a northwest wind, there's no way that you can get to it without getting access from the neighbor who doesn't like you and won't give you access. So, you know, you have to cross it off your list. Um, you can try going in there from a different direction. So I'd say one of the mistakes people make is um, if you're traveling a long distance, when you get within like 100, 150 yards of that area, you really want to start focusing in and paying attention to what's going on around you. Um, 
ideally you want to have pre-scouted a spot in the spring and you kind of know the layout of the trees that are in there so you you have an idea of where you might hang but a lot of times we don't and you're just walking in and reading that sign so when you're getting close to the area or the spot you know if you have it tracked on your mobile phone where you're going start really focusing in and looking at the brows looking at the trails start thinking about how those deer are moving in and out of that area because you're looking to pick a tree that's going to give you the best opportunity for a shot. And I think a mistake that's made is there's not enough focus in that last 150, 75 yards. You know, people are plodding along, they're making noise. Um, they're not looking at the sign detailed enough, you know? Um, so that would be, that would be one. To go on to what uh, Mario just said, uh, I got this thing where this, I live in this fast-paced life where I'm always doing these shows and working in shops and stuff where I'm running around like a madman. And that follows me right into the woods. So for me personally, I get to that 150 yards that Mario's talking. I got to stop and I'll actually sit down because because of the physical way I am. If I keep going, I won't go slow enough. I have to sit down and slow my metabolism down and think about things and then just go slow. And that's just me personally. That's probably not everybody. But I have to do that or I'll find myself going too fast, making mistakes and making noises. One noise blows that whole hunch you've been planning the whole year. You know, as far as access goes, um, one thing I was thinking about when Josh was asking that question was a lot of times I'll be hunting these spots that we were talking about that are, you know, 75 or 100 yards from the truck. And it might take me an hour to get there because I got to go way out in the swamp and go around about in a way because of the wind and stuff. You really got to look at what you got to do to get to that spot in the best way and trying to sneak past the deer is probably not a good idea. You really got to think about your access. So, I mean, in a lot of these cases, the reason that buck's there is because he's monitoring that parking lot. And if you try hunting from the parking lot, he's going to know you're coming at him. You got to walk past him and come back at him in the direction he's going to go and cut him off. It's not always the case, but you have to think about those things. Dan, earlier you mentioned um, rubs and sign. It's something we haven't really talked about yet uh, in depth. How important is that to you? You said, you said if you don't see big rubs, you move on to the next property. Like, is there ever a time when, you know, sign big big rubs isn't as important as, you know, I see a big track here or there's scrapes in this particular area? Could you guys touch on that, you and Mario? Yeah, you know, um, here, here's the thing. Um, a lot of times, and I, I believe this would be the case for a lot of you people in Michigan, you might get on a property and there's only one mature buck, like over five years old. That buck is not going to rub up his bedding area. And he's not going to because when they rub in a bedding area, it's because they're competing with other bucks for those beds. So you might just find young buck bed rubs around there, you know. Um, that big buck doesn't have to prove who he is. He owns that area. When he's there, that's his. So his rubs will be more like uh, breeding rubs or just out random rubs marking trails or food. A lot of the early rubs will be marking food like this is my food. And then they'll compete with younger bucks. So you might find bedding areas that have no big buck sign that have big bucks. But on that property, you will find big buck rubs. All bucks rub. I mean, we shoot bucks, their antlers are polished. They rub. So there should be rubs there somewhere. All right. Oh, go ahead, Mario. No, no, that's, I was going to say, do you got anything else to add to it? I think with the, the rub thing, I agree that the more the competition, the more mature animals you have in there, just the higher density of bucks, you're going to get more rubs. They're going to compete more. Um, so it, it's a tricky one because I personally, when I get onto a property in Wisconsin and there's a lot of rubs in there, I'm like, holy cow, I don't normally see this that much. And so, you know, that means there's competition. So that'd be one thing to key in on is I wouldn't get too discouraged by that. And the one thing I would say is you probably heard this before is like, if I could see them, I could kill them. Or if I can get my eyes on them, I can kill them. I think if you have an inkling that there's an area where there's something mature living, try to figure out some way to observe that. I know obviously cameras are popular, but actually getting your eyes on them, 
through glassing some adjacent property or going in on a summer night and sitting back in your stand and actually getting binoculars on something. Because there's something to be said for seeing how an animal moves out of an area. Um, and even with a mistake you might make on a setup, a mistake on busting a deer out of an area isn't necessarily bad because you've just, you, you got 95% of the, the way there. The animal came out, you watched him, maybe he busted you on the wind, but that information you're gonna be able to use for the next year and the next year. Maybe you can't use it that season because you've kind of buggered up that area, but those, those bucks tend to use those same patterns in those same areas year after year. They come back, I've seen it. I've seen generational bucks travel properties in the same way. So I think it's something to think about, about success and failure. It's really just kind of a, a journey where you're learning these different tidbits. So don't, don't put so much pressure on yourself that like, I gotta have the perfect setup and get in there. And if I blow it, the whole season is lost. No, you just learned something. You just learned about how that deer is coming out of that area. And maybe it was different than what you thought, right? So I like to take a lot of, oh, sorry. I like to take a lot of notes and journals and log stuff. Um, and I'll end up going back and reading it like the next year or maybe two years later. And that builds on that insight. So, yeah. Don't be afraid to make a bunch of mistakes. Dana, did you want to say something else? Okay. One more question. Then we got a lot of people here, so we were going to let everybody kind of ask away here and here in just a second. But I wanted to ask you guys, how long do you think it takes for deer to pick up on pressure? Like when a, when a property starts to see pressure, when's things going to change? That's a tough question. Um, I really don't notice that. I mean, I, to me, it just seems like mature bucks live in that paranoia all the time. It's just like um, when I go hunt, uh, like say occasionally um, a private farm that gives me access, I find those bucks still bedding in those spots that look like the overlooked spots on the private, still only moving 75 yards in daylight. And I mean, I see pressure like uh, pheasant pressure coming in and more of the deer move into the middle of the swamp that can take like a day or two. Um, but like, uh, you think about pheasant hunting, I used to guide. And when I guided deer hunters, we used to do a pheasant hunt where we put the guys out to hunt deer. When the pheasant hunters would open up, they'd open up at noon. And when they'd come in, they'd just cover the whole area. And they'd go through the red brush and stuff and move a lot of deer. In like five years of guiding hunters, none of them ever had an opportunity at a mature buck on that opening day of pheasant hunting. They'd have little deer running past them. But during early season hunting oaks and stuff, we'd have big bucks around all the time. So in my mind, I think about it like, like when we do deer drives. When you move a big buck, he does not get up and run across the field. He does not get up and run through the woods. He uses cover and sneaks a short way and beds back down. And a lot of the big bucks we shoot on drives are walking, they're sneaking. They don't get up and run and move forever. So usually that pressure takes a day. And uh, there's one spot where I have an island in the middle of a bowl of cattails. where We walk around that uh, bowl for a day, you know, and hit every little finger point that's got bedding on it. And then wait a day and go hunt that island and have incredible hunts. Because every deer will go bed around that island because that's the next transition zone that has bedding. Um, but it takes a day. It takes a day for them to relocate out there because when they get bumped out of their beds, they're not going to go running. They're just going to go bed someplace that's still got some security without exposing themselves. Yeah, it was. Uh, we we looked at a uh, study that was done in PA on the show a few weeks ago. The there was like twelve hundred deer collared in PA throughout their public land on private land anywhere the deer would like to roam, and there was a uh, a significant uh, shift in the deer's patterns the day before uh, opening of gun season in PA. It's crazy. Um, so I just wanted to bring that up too. That's, that's why I asked the question. It's, um, it's, it's crazy how they can develop a knack. Now, I mean, pheasant hunting is going to be different than gun hunting in P Pennsylvania, you know. But well, you, you know, uh, I always said if they open gun deer season at noon like they do ducks and pheasants, yeah, they'd have an incredible kill. 
I mean, even guys that got camps that are private, if they could open it, if they started hunting at noon, what happens is everybody goes out and uh, in the morning, the whole woods fills up with guys and every deer knows they're out there, you know, and then it just shuts down. Yep. You know, um, but in the afternoon, if they weren't freaked out in the morning, they just get up and come out naturally. You might have to fact check me on this, but uh, for some of you, like animal behavior wise, if you follow like caribou migrations and the ones that happen up in Alaska where multiple herds of caribou at the same time every year converge and do the, the great migration all together like that, you know, and they've radio cowered these herds and tracked them over several years and, and monitored them. And they're, they actually believe in that case that that the ability to do that and the knowledge to do that is passed down through the through the fawns and through the doe to be able to do that. And the doe lead those herds through those migrations. So I, I honestly look at it as like, it's a generational thing. These areas and where these deer, they're, they're watching how their environment changes and they're definitely changing their patterns based on that and their behavior. Now, whether or not they have cognitive memory of that and they're recalling it and they're behaving I think it's more instinctual, right? They're they're in an environment where it's a survival environment. So again, they're they're seeing, they're smelling, it's safety, it's sound, they're interacting with all that instantly in like a hypersensitive way. So those patterns, you're gonna find younger age class deer that are gonna you're gonna seem like, oh, that deer's behaving oddly or st stupidly. It's it's walking in the wrong direction for what the wind is, or it's right downwind to me and it doesn't care. I think that's that learning curve. But like Dan said, those mature animals, they've got all that knowledge sort of passed down to them through those, through the generations, in addition to what they've perceived and learned as they grow in age. Cause that's constantly what they're doing is observing their environment and how it's changing. So it's sort of the fun part about this mobile hunting game because you're putting together a plan trying to figure out what that animal's thinking and why it's moving in the directions that it is based on wind, based on access, based on cover. And then you're, you're taking the other side of it. You're saying, well, how can I be one step ahead of him and outsmart him with my wind, with my access, with my cover, with my direction. And it, it kind of, it boils down to those simple things, but you have to get, you know, I go back to getting, Getting eyes on them, like Dan and I have had situations where, you know, a couple of them where we got eyes on a buck and then, you know, a couple of weeks later, one of us ended up killing it because of putting a little plan together and slowly stage hunting a property step by step by step. But, yeah. Yeah, that those like studies of migrations and deer are just fascinating. That PA study was unbelievable for like looking at pressured land. Essentially, it tells you those deer are just really good at living in an area and they just shift around in that area depending on the pressure. And it's fascinating. Anyways, look it up. Um, Want to get into the, some Q&As. If you guys have any questions for Dan or Mario, yeah, ra raise your hand and we'll get you a, a mic so you're we can hear you. Um, does anybody have a, a question? There's a bunch of you out there. Surely someone has a question. There you go. How are you doing? Good. So, so anyway, my question here is, here in Michigan, we have some good tracts of land, but a lot of access on two, three, or four sides. You may have, say, the south side is mostly private, the other three sides might be a road and then two tracks coming in the other two sides. So we end up, you got four directions of travel you can come into these places. You know, I looked at a spot yesterday, looked good, hilly, benches, valleys, no sign. And uh, the access points were from four different directions. What would you do in a situation like that? As far as looking at it you know a scout you go way back in the middle i found some sign finally but the access point is my question so you got multiple access points multiple people coming you just 
Check it out. Move on. Uh, for me, I just keep moving. I mean, if you ain't got sign in there, that's the big thing. But that access is probably why you don't have sign. I mean, if you got access from all the way around and people can get in there from any direction, there's probably people getting in there. So I'm always looking for that overlooked stuff. And I mean, that doesn't sound overlooked to me that you have some. I think it, let's say that you did find a spot on there. So kind of break it down how I would look at it. Um, Visually, so there's a map, you know that there's access from four different locations. So you mentioned you might have found a spot on there that you'd like where there's some sign. Well, then you have to think about based on wind, right? Predominant wind. If you found sign on there that you think you'd like, well, what's the predominant wind and how does that wind change when you're in that area? So if it's like a, you know, 50 yard swath and you're looking at the and how does the animal use that wind, sight, sound, to hold up in that area? So you factor in those things. Then that's going to tell you how, which way you have to come in to even be able to hunt it, right? Because if the wind, let's just make it obvious, if the wind is blowing in from the west, you know, you're not going to access in from the west right at the backside and booger it all up. And maybe his line of sight actually is he can line a sight you to the east. So you can't access from the east. So now you've crossed off the west, you've crossed off the east, and now a ton of pressure is coming from the south. Like a lot of people are walking in from the south, but no one's walking in from the north. So as Dan said, you may wanna choose the south because you're gonna follow the same pattern as everyone else is, and that deer is patterning those people. So you may use that to come in but the north might provide you some specific advantage. Maybe it's a just off wind or the cover that presents there prevents that animal's line of sight. Maybe you can get in quieter to that location from the north. So that that's like sort of a thought process that one would go through. But, but Dan's right. If you're gonna shrink that property down, you first wanna like find an area where you think there's actual deer there Otherwise, you know, maybe you keep it on your list, but move on to the next one. So does that make sense? Like the thought process of how you narrow it down? Just makes it all the harder, you know, a lot more looking, but definitely makes sense. So thank you. Yeah, if you guys have any more questions, just come up here and yep, they will get you in line there. Come on up here. We're all we're all friendly up here, except for Dan. How many times can you go into a property, private or public, before it gets burnt out? So, you know, can you hit that one one full week, or is that too much? What do you What do you recommend? Uh, that's an interesting question. Um, I think it's spot specific. Now. Um, area me and mario hunt i mean you remember that hunt for the um that buck i ended up getting where i hunted it i hunted it down mario had seen it and uh i i we actually thought it was bigger than it was but it was still a really good buck but uh we mario was i think you were tagged out or you weren't you you didn't have a permit for there or something but i was in there on my own and he had seen it earlier in the year and i wanted to find that buck and i knew he was living in this vast swamp so what i did is i mapped out where i thought he would be bedding and i hunted every area down till i got that buck but i was in there every day and i mean a lot of people online were like i thought you didn't pressure a property i didn't i you know it's a spot specific if you bump him out of the the bedding area he's not gonna be there no more that's pressure so for me um last year i think i probably put in over a hundred sets and uh, I think I sat the same tree maybe 10 times. So I might have sat the tree twice in that whole season. Otherwise, every single hunt was the only time I hunted there the whole year. Um, because, you know, when you break down my hunts, my top 15 bucks, which are all over five years old, when I look at the stats on them, I think it's 60 or 70% of them. So is the first time I ever sat that spot. And uh, there's something to that. 
those big bucks, the older they get, the more they, they have that knowledge from the past, like Mario was talking about, where they learn, you know, you know danger. And they just avoid people. So um, it is really spot specific. You can hunt an area down. You know a buck's in there. I don't back off. If there's a buck in there I want to kill, why do I want to go hunt a six-pointer across the street? I'm going to keep hunting it. But I'm going to hunt it in a smart manner. Now, it gets a little bit difficult there, though, because, like, we got Dave's farm I used to hunt, right? 70 acres, pretty open. You go in there a couple times, and it's void, and now they're in the swamps around you. So it is, you know, you can do damage, you know, but that can be from your axis or anything. But it's wherever you meet up with that deer. You know, if you if he's crossing your trail or you're going, you know, I can hunt the front of the farm and the next day hunt the back and it has no influence the front to the back. It's spot specific. They're okay with your scent over here. They're not over here. Really, you know, you see deer um, around their bedding areas. You'll notice that uh, if you go and hunt like we do, you get right up against a bedding area 100 yards. When that deer does come out and smell your scent, he freaks. I mean, he's like, oh, this is bad. It's the equivalent of, uh, you know, if you if you came home one day and your window's open and there's grizzly bear tracks in your kitchen, you'd be pretty freaked out. But if you uh, if you went out in the backyard and there's grizzly tracks in the backyard, you'd be like, this is bad, but you just keep your eyes open and you'd be okay. But don't come in my living room, right? So you're going in their living room. That's, what's, that's what the problem is when you're getting real close to them. But that's what you got to do to kill them. And that's why it's so important to make that move at the exact timing and because you get one crack. Any other questions? Come on up here and Dave will get a mic in your face. There you go. Uh, when you find that bed where it has that wow factor, like what kind of tactics do you first use to try to figure out when he's using the, the bed? Okay, what he... What he's uh, referring to as wow factor is me and him have a, had a conversation earlier. And, you know, you look at these swamps and stuff that most of us hunt, and you will find beds everywhere. And a lot of guys, when they're first starting this, get confused. I mean, they, they see all those beds, and they're like, well, where do I hunt? But the big bucks are usually in the specific areas. And uh, when me and Mario find a mature buck, like five or six years old, we always laugh and joke about the wow factor. And what I mean about that is that when you find those beds, you're always like, holy crap, this is perfect. How would you ever kill this thing? And then we pick it apart and figure out how to do it. So uh, what exactly were you getting at? What, what's the first tactic you go to? Like, what, what's, uh, what's the first thing that you use to to determine that you need to find more information about this specific buck in that bed. Okay. Even if you know what the buck, maybe you know what buck it is, if, or if you don't, or vice versa. Okay, so to, to elaborate on that wall factor, um, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna be a detective. I'm gonna go in and I'm gonna look at that bed and I'm gonna be like, okay, now how am I gonna kill this thing? The first thing I wanna know is uh, when is this deer here? Just finding a bed doesn't mean a whole lot. What we're finding with trail camera studies and stuff that, uh, you know, I, I get really into this stuff, so I figure it out and I get better and better and better. With these trail camera studies and actual observations and stuff and journals that we both keep, you start seeing how these deer um, really aren't there all that much. You can find a worn out bed, and when they're really there is for a peak period. Something's going on that puts them right there, and they have these really good elaborate beds like that a lot of them you know they might have 15 20 of them and they rotate through and he might be in that bed because of an acorn flat there and he's only there every other year the common mistake is uh people will find his bed just ripped up and they don't do their detective work and that there's there because of acorns and those acorns are there every other year so the next year they come back and they're like well this is all ripped up now there's no sign this deer ain't here so they abandon it and the next spring, they come in there and it's like, holy crap, it's ripped up again. I'm going to hunt it. And they're chasing the years. You know, you'd be better off hunting there the year it's not ripped up. But you got to do that detective work. Why are they there? Are they there because does are in rut? Are they watching does? I mean, we got what we call 
rut bedding, which is something me and Mario actually discovered together. Um, uh, he could tell you the story of that. But uh, we figure out exactly why that deer is bedded there, when he's bedded there. Is it because of a wind? Is it because of, you know, look at the cover. Is that cover specific to time of year? Like Mari was talking about stem count. When is that deer bedded there? You got to figure that out and try to put that together. Now you, you see um, uh, bedding that is going on towards the end of October into November. Those bedding areas for mature bucks at that time frame will be ripped to shreds with rubs. Big buck bedding that is in, that is in early season. If you're looking at it in uh, spring when we scout, it looks pretty old, but you can see the beds and there's not a lot of rubs, but there's a few big ones. Maybe that's early season when they're not rubbing so much. So you gotta be that detective and you're gonna be wrong sometimes. Sometimes you're gonna be right. Now, the last really big buck I shot was two seasons ago, and that was a, a mature buck I had been hunting for several years. And that buck, hunting him for years, it was really difficult because I was always trying to figure out that Achilles heel because he was so perfect on what he was doing. He's out in his vast cattail marsh, and there's only a couple trees he, he bedded near or whatever, and he had my number there. He had figured that out. So even if he did come by him in daylight, he was going downwind. He was checking to see if I was there. And I was like, how can I do this? And I just kept going back and trying to figure this out. And I came across this hump in the cattails that was like dry ground but had no trees. So you couldn't see it from the distance because it was under the cattails. It was a real small area, but it was covered with, with uh, willow brush. Well, all that willow brush was rubbed and rubbed, you know, like a ton of it. And there was like 50 beds in there, in this little tiny tight area, and they're all big buck beds. And you're looking at that and like, huh. And there's a heavy trail coming out of it that goes to a little point of brush that had one tree about as big around as my leg where I could get like eight feet off the ground, like 75 yards from the bed, beds. So I looked at that, and you look at the willow brush, and you're like, well, I know willow brush dro drops its leaves in early October. In Wisconsin, we open in September, you know, like mid-September. And I'm like, I'd be willing to bet the majority of this betting is going on in September. That willow brush leaves its, loses its leaves. Ain't no big buck laying out in the open sun on that grass. So all those beds, they have to be done when they have hard antlers because they're rubbing. They have to be when the leaves are on because they need the shade. So it left a little tiny window and told me that two-week period and because of that, I was there at the right timing and killed that buck. You want to talk about that buck? Yeah. Yeah, to echo what Dan said, I think one of the first things that goes to your mind is you find the bed and you think to yourself, okay, time of year, why is he here? Is he here during this time of the year, during the spring or summer when I'm scouting? Or is he actually there during, you know, the early part of the season, the fall, the rut? Like timing is the one thing. And then, and then the why, why is he here? Is it food? Is there a food source nearby now in the summer? Is there a food source in mid fall, late fall? Is there something in the winter time where an adjacent food source where they start herding up, pulls them into that? Um, but the timing of the year in these rut beds, for example, how they switch up these beds, we found a small remote island that we had actually hunted before. So when you were talking about pressure and doing these stage hunts, earlier in the year, we had gone into these areas and we had hunted this small oak island. Um, and it wasn't until the following year when we did more scouting around the perimeter that we found beds on the perimeter of it. But what was interesting about this island is that after a couple of years of hunting in this area, we noticed that Every year around that pre-rut, so late October for Wisconsin, right, getting into early November, that a, a large scrape would open up in the center of the island. Now, the predominant wind kind of blew across that island in the southwest manner, and there was beds that were st strategically placed, like, on the fringe right around the east edge of that island. So if you think of the wind blowing up over the top of that island where that scrape is and blowing down into the swamp. Well, it was one of the years where Wisconsin still had earn a buck. So I was tagged out, but I had an earn a buck tag. So I had a second buck tag. 
And Dan had an encounter with a buck in an area that was close to this place. So he's like, hey, someone's got to go back there and hunt this other little small island. So long story short, if you think about this small oak island, it's got a primary scrape on it. It's got these beds that are around the perimeter. So on that morning when I went in there and hunted, I had a doe come onto the island. She was exhibiting behavior that she was an estrus and she came into the scrape, right? Scented the scrape, walked off. Within a minute of that, I had a smaller buck get up on the side of the island to my east and give chase around the edge of a doe. So that buck was in wind shot of that doe's scent as she came across the center of the island. So he was sitting there specifically monitoring that scrape like 75 yards to the east for anything that traveled across there. Then not 30 seconds later, I hear sloshing and pounding coming out of the swamp to my north. So again, with a southwest wind, that buck could catch some of the scent and obviously hear this other buck grunt and chase. And a more mature, probably he was, you know, 140-inch buck, pulled into the island I was on. And then where I was sitting on the backside of the island, there was a little bowl. So I think what happened is he kind of picked up my thermals that were like gathering in that bowl. But he ran up and he froze and he put his nose up in the air and froze right there. But so my point of the story is about bedding is that those beds aren't huntable in September when the season opens. They're not being used for any purpose at that point. The bucks are further back or they're closer to other islands that have mature oaks on them. But during that window of the year, right? So late October, early part of November, those bucks move into there because they're specifically monitoring doe that are traveling across those island systems and scenting those areas. So they can smell who's in the area and if there's a hot doe in the area, both of those bucks got up and wanted to give chase. Now I spooked the big one, right? Cause he smelled me there and he's wise to it. But I think that's how your mind has to start thinking when you find beds. Like, why is it there and what time of the year are they using it? Because all beds aren't equal. So. I want to add to that. Um, one thing that I do, um, and Mario also, if we have a confrontation with a real big buck and we're not exactly sure where he came from. After season, we're backtracking, we're finding that bedding. We're figuring it out, right? So in this particular buck, both me and him went back and wanted to know where this buck came from. So we followed it back off the point, the second buck, and found his exact bed. And it was watching, it had to, the only spot you could be where you had a little opening and you could watch where that doe came from. Where the, and that was a known doe bedding area. So that was the exit for the known doe bedding area. So he was in a spot where he could watch that. And the trees were just torn up there and there's a bed that was barely used. And in these rut beds, that's what you find. You find a bed that looks like well, I can kind of tell a deer bedded here, but he sure didn't bed here very much. But he rubbed a lot of trees around it because he's aggressive for the doe, right? But if you're there at that timing, the first week of November, there's a great chance that that buck is going to be in that bed monitoring that doe bedding area. But it's that little tiny window, you know. I know we sound kind of like a broken record, but I would match the same thing for other times of the year. So again, in the beginning of the year, we really like the first week of the season in Wisconsin because there's certain types of food sources and browse that the deer will come back to time and time again. So we focus on those areas that attract those deer to those bedding areas that have that browse and food source. You know, acorns is a common one you hear but there's other stuff they're feeding on in areas that's lush and rich during those time of the years. So we try to slide in and hunt those areas. It's time specific, it's food specific, and it's really centralized to a pretty tight area. You're talking, you know, a hundred yard radius of a spot where these deer are living. Um, a lot of guys in Wisconsin, they get, they get pictures all throughout the summer on apple trees, you know, but they tend to, Apple trees tend to sour up and rotten in that in that first week. But if we get an early week where maybe the season starts on the 12th versus the 15th or the 17th, depending on how it falls, well, those apple trees are in a little bit better shape and they're still dropping fresh fruit. 
And if you have access to those areas on public, because there's a lot of apple trees that are spread out across public, that can be a really, really hot spot to go hunt. You know, seems obvious, but there's a timing thing there, right? Because the apples are going to sour up and they won't be in there eating. All right, we got uh, probably time for one more. We just got a few minutes. Anybody else have a, a question? Oh, no questions, no more. Going once, going twice. All right. Everybody, thanks for coming out and listening. If you got any more questions, go over to the Beast Gear booth and we'll all be over there uh, to talk. Do you guys have anything else? Dan, nope, you like your Thanks, everybody, for coming. Yeah. Yeah, thank you, everyone. Appreciate it. Thank you.